So I know you're waiting with bated breath to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire because such cool stuff happens, but we're not masochists. I want to remind you one or two things we said last week. And if um, a couple of people said in our group, I missed this, etc. Online, if you go into PBC, uh, there's a thing that says sermons, and then you look under that and explore sermons, and you click on that, and you'll find... It normally takes uh, about two days for that particular... So last week's sermon uh, will be up. But remember that this is not a Disney story in w- that's telling us to all stand up for what we believe in. I mean, that's exactly missing the point. That we all just stand up for whatever we believe in. What uh, triggered Nebuchadnezzar, the king's fury and rage was that by standing, they were critiquing his God and his beliefs. It wasn't just that they were standing up for what they believed in. Their evidence was standing against what was before them, which was a giant tower as high as Garden City Heights. Um, And so we ended last week by considering a far better alternative to pluralism, which is the belief that everyone is somehow right, by examining freedom of conscience... Uh, and, and when we come to diversity, which is a gift from God, in other words, there's lots of people who are different from us and who think differently and who are different and who look different and who sound different, when we come to diversity um, and even to deep differences of belief, which could have many cause, uh, causes, freedom of conscience that permits true diversity is not the belief that everyone is somehow right. Freedom of conscience defends the right of others to be wrong. And freedom of conscience defends the right to say so. You're you're allowed to say, I don't agree. It's a very important statement in a sane society. And we're kind of living in an insane world at the moment. And so we saw that the fruit of that is what you discussed earlier. A world in which everyone is right quickly becomes an angry world in which I'm never wrong. Um, So you might want to go back and look at the story and say, how the heck did he get that out of Daniel chapter 3? Good luck and and listen to the sermon. So we go back to Daniel chapter 3 and we're, you know, we know the story. He builds this image requires people to bow down and worship. The three of them won't. And so Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage, summons them. And so these men are brought to the king. And verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to bow down and worship the image I've made, well, very good. But if you do not worship, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, 
the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty. <laughs> that we will not serve your gods or the, worship the image of gold that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with them. And his attitude towards them changed. And he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. And commanded some of the song, strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other kit, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. And the king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that the flames of fire killed these strong soldiers who took, them, uh, took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Let's stop there. No, we won't. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up? threw into the fire they replied certainly your majesty he said look i see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted shadrach meshach and abednego Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors all crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched. There was no smell of fire on them. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Notice he gets the point now. Except their own god. Therefore, I decree... That the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he does the usual despot uh, kind of response, be cut into pieces and their houses turned into rubble. His furnace isn't working anymore. For no other God can save in this way. And then as was sort of like standard practice when a king had been humbled and, you know, you, he was always looking for alliances. And so he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So our focus today shifts, as it were, from uh, the, the lead up into the actual story and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their incredible answer. But we're also going to finish by going back to Nebuchadnezzar and working out what's evident from his heart. So as we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see that they refuse to bow to a man-made God. 
they do this because they profoundly believe God made them. Now, this is, this is like really fundamental. They give him the reason in verse 18. We will not bow to or worship the image of gold that you, O king, have set up. They're recognizing he's human. They're recognizing this may be his truth. He may be utterly convinced. It, remember, it relates to a sense of self that he had derived out of a dream God gave him. And so he was that head of gold, and he makes this huge thing of gold, uh, or probably gold-coated. And, and even if it's man-made by the head of an empire, they are saying, no, doesn't matter who you are. We will not worship your image. We will not worship the image you have set up. Remember Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God created. God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in the earth. The earth is the Lord, says Psalm 24 verse 1. And everything in it, all who live in it, all who even swim the paths of the sea. I didn't know there were paths in the sea, but you know, the poetic effect. Explore. If we get this idea right, that God made us and we never get to make any God. So much else falls into place. Maybe a better way to think of this is to think of well-laid foundations. If you're going to build a house and the foundations are out of spec or they're uneven or they're not in alignment or they're made of an inferior mix and there's too much sand and not enough uh, cement or concrete and you get the foundations wrong, you simply cannot get the house you desired. In the beginning, God created. You've got to lay that as a fundamental foundation. God says, I am who I am. That is my name. We don't have the ability to create a God. They refuse to bow to something man-made, whether it's ideological or physical. Now remember, of course, in that instance, it was both. If you want to see a house that will last, then you are going to have to lay a foundation that says, in the beginning, God created. Why? Because of how the story goes. Now, notice the respect, your majesty, etc. They're not attacking him. They're simply refusing his version and refusing his God. This isn't cancel culture. This isn't blame. This isn't threats. Our God's going to get you. It's quite simply, we're not going to bow. They refuse to bow to a man-made God. How many man-made gods are there in our world today? Secondly, they introduce the Lord as the God we serve. The God we serve. 
See, the truth of it is, is that all man-made gods are invented, they're not created, they invented for the purpose of serving us in some way. You know, we looked at that belief held in pluralism that someone's truth is true for them. And the misguided intention of being inclusive and diverse. Now, as I said, it's hard to find a real atheist today. It's like, I mean, a hardcore atheist. You much more likely find a pluralist, someone who believes everyone has a right to their opinion. And, and by the way, it's actually quite an indifferent position. Because I don't care enough about you to try and show you truth anymore. It's a way of keeping distance. It's a way of keeping things superficial. So pluralists will often say something like, um, you know, I'll do a funeral or a wedding and I'll preach Jesus with all my heart and they'll say something like this. Wow, I admire your faith. Or, I love your passion. You heard that before? You're so sincere. I can see it means a lot to you. You heard this stuff before? I may even be describing some people in the room, and I'm not trying to knock you. I understand. This is also sincerely what you believe from your side because you're a pluralist. You genuinely think that everybody's right in their own way. But you know, when people tell me I love your passion or I admire your faith, I used to think that was a good sign. Now, if they were atheists then it would be a good sign. But they're not. They're pluralists. It's a sign that they are as lost as ever. You're as far from the true God when you're walking around saying that as you would be if you were cursing Him to His face. Why do I say that? Because people are still assuming that everyone should make or find a God who is fit for purpose. That he's there to meet our needs. That he's there to make us feel better. That he's there to serve us. And if I can't find a God who will meet my needs, then he's not much God at all. You see, if you create the God, the God must serve you. But if God has created you, then... I must serve him if he's, you understand? And so they understand that if he is the creator, the Lord of heaven and earth, he is the God we serve. We don't find a God who is fit for purpose. We find a God who creates, sustains, and redeems. And you get to know him on his terms. 
Can I say something with so much concern? That if you think sincerity is enough, please think again. If you think admiring someone's faith is enough, please think again. You're in grave danger. You cannot build a house of true faith on those foundations. You've literally got to change the paradigm completely. You've got to dig up the foundations and start again. The God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the Lord of heaven and earth, is not man-made or woman-made. But can I tell you this? He loves you deeply, and He's created you for Himself so that you might find your meaning and purpose and build a house that lasts out of discovering the God you can serve. Now, God does love, and He does heal, and He does save, and He does care, and He does answer. But you will only find your true purpose by accepting Him for who He is, the God who made you. You see, it's the creator and designer who understands the purpose of the creation. And so they stake their lives on the truth underneath their faith. They don't just stake their lives on their faith as if whatever they believed is the most important thing. There's a truth that they actually believe. They stake their lives on the truth underneath their faith. Remember trying to build a house that's going to last? They're facing eternity, and they stake their lives on the truth underneath their faith. And this is it. If you throw us into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from your hand. Our God is able. He is creator, yes, but he's also deliverer. He is mighty to save in the language of Isaiah 63. Now, consider this. Their language would have almost certainly offended the king. Now, if you're going to give an answer like they gave, our God is able to deliver us. When your life is on the line and the furnace is there, you better not be relying on self-constructed imaginations. This is not the place to say, I hope my opinion is as good as yours. Shall we Google it? <laughs> you know, how do we settle arguments today? Well, we'll Google it. This is not the place to hope you're going to win. This is not the place to roll your opinions. This is literally, could in these moments be the end of their lives. Their answer would enrage the king, and it did. There's a profound lesson here. It is better to die for the right things than to live for the wrong ones. I don't know if I fully understand that truth. 
I've never had to face what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego faced. We've all been through moments of challenge and required courage. But in these moments, they were facing something that could literally end their lives. And they knew. So I'm telling you on their behalf, it's better to die for the right things than to live for the wrong things. That's how serious these foundations are. That's how deep these things go. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who returned to Nazi Germany during and into the, well, into the lead-up and then during World War II. And he was there as a German confessing believer to resist the influence of the Nazi government, to object to the genocide of the Jews, to stand in solidarity now, he was from the elite. He was from, like, as it were, the ruling class, the intelligentsia. He had a string of degrees, and, and he had public voice, and he used that influence to stand against the Nazi regime for the sake of the downtrodden. He himself could have walked away, been unscathed, but that led to him being imprisoned at Tegel Prison, and he was awaiting trial. And even from inside prison, through various networks, he continued his work amongst his prisoners and through his letters into the wider community. He was even trying to reach his guards. And one of his guards, a guy named Kobloch, uh, even offered to help him escape, but he wouldn't do it because he was concerned that if he escaped, and he knew he could, the consequences for the rest of his family would be that they would all be executed. And so he stayed and he continued in that jail to witness and to testify and to stand. You don't have to agree with everything he said. I say that for Lindsay and Bevan's uh, uh, benefit because we know that, I mean, which theologian are you always? But eventually, late in April 1945, Adolf Hitler found the diaries of Admiral Canaris who was working with Bonhoeffer and six others to literally try and end the Nazi regime and rid Germany of Hitler. And so Bonhoeffer was condemned to death. And literally just a couple of days later, he's going to the gallows to be hung. And he turned to Payne Best, who was an English prisoner, and said to him, do you know Bishop George Bell of Chichester? If you get home, won't you tell him? This is the end. But for me, it's the beginning of life. And within hours, he was dead. You better stake your life on something worth dying for. I don't want to assume that everyone here has already crossed the line of faith in Jesus, which means you could be here for many reasons this morning, including that you have more questions than answers, and that's, that's great. It's wonderful that you are here. I'm grateful that you're listening. But may I ask you to consider something? 
do you think people would approach the world of ideas and beliefs differently if they knew they faced a trial by fire? Would we debate and argue things so flippantly? For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they would literally face the scrutiny of the furnace. I remind us this is not a Disney story about everyone standing up for what we believe in. It's a story about knowing truth and rejecting lies. It's about becoming the kind of person who can stake your life on the truth that underpins your faith. You better make sure it's true. And then this really blows me away. I'm going, come on, Craig, let's get to the fire next time. They believed without guarantees. Listen, the, uh, their own theology did not guarantee that they were going to be saved. They were saying, sorry, they aren't saying, we will serve you if you save us. They are simply saying, here's the God we serve. He's the God we serve. There's no conditions in this space. It wasn't a TV show called Survivor where they could win the immunity. You know, this was the real deal. They did not know whether God would save them. They did know that he could be trusted. You know, crisis often reveals whether my faith is transactional or personal. Transactional faith, and you'd have to say transactional, inverted commas, faith, like God, I'll believe, says, Lord, if you'll heal, Lord, if you'll fix, Lord, if you'll provide, Lord, if you'll protect, Lord, if you'll turn this situation around, then I will believe. It's a transaction. It's conditional. And you're demanding God's guarantees before you will surrender yourself to God. And you know, you don't know what you're going to do until you face a genuine crisis where you're seeing a family member die, where you may be losing your home or something like that, and you're wondering... You've been without a job for how long? And you're tempted to say, God, if you, then I. And we've all been there. But faith that endures says, I will serve you whether you save me or not. I will serve you. I will serve you. There's no ifs. I will serve you, whether you save me or not. And so they were standing on the truth of God's word, and they would have known the preamble and the first few commands of Exodus 20, where it says, And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and this is what they're holding on to. You shall have no other gods before me. 
And you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them, and you shall not worship them. This is service without guarantees. He's the God we serve. He's able to save. But even if he doesn't, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not bow down to your image that you have made. This is the nature of true faith and deep trust. And then I'm going to jump a little bit because I want to wrap up with this because I think it relates to what we've been looking at. Nebuchadnezzar admires their faith but still does not turn to God. Not yet. And you're going, ah, Craig, you're missing the best part. Jesus, you know, there's, there's another in the fire. <clears throat> you know, and we could even sing, there is another in the fire. Where's Andrea when I need her? And like, what, who, how, why? There's so much going on inside the furnace. So you'll have to come back next time. Because it's a staggering event filled with prophetic and symbolic meaning. Not just in the moment, it speaks to a timeless action of God. But I want us to, so that we can focus on that properly. Just consider in the light of what we've been talking about, about building a faith that stands and stands. Nebuchadnezzar admires their faith. I love your passion. Oh, I love your passion. You're so sincere. But still does not turn to God. He is awed. He's amazed. He is wowed by the supernatural manifest presence of God. He even admits his mistake. I mean, compare the end of verse 15 with the end of verse 29, end of verse 15. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Verse 29. No other God can save in this way. Like he admits, you got a point. <laughs> like, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, no. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God, one. Or maybe two already, you know, if you count chapter two. What God can rescue? No other God can rescue in this way. No other God. He admits his mistake. He knows he's wrong. But he still does not choose to serve the Lord. Why not? Because he's trapped inside a way of seeing the world. He believes firmly that people are at the center of reality. His foundations are literally crumbling, but he won't let them go because he thinks that gods are man-made and therefore they must be preserved and protected by men. And so he goes on to say, I decree, 
Not that he is the true God of all gods. It's just, I decree that you can't speak against this God. This God needs my protection. Like, really? But, but do you understand how a worldview, a paradigm can lock you? It's, it's a logical outworking of his understanding of man-made gods. They need to be protected. You can't speak against this God. I'll chop you up. I'll tear your house down. Don't you dare. This God now enjoys my protection. Give me strength. <laughs> Let's not be patronizing towards the creator of heaven and earth. When we get to chapter 4, we'll see this God is not done with Nebuchadnezzar. It's going to be a painful seven-year journey. But this God loves this stubborn king, and he's not going to let go. But I want to ask this morning, do I understand that God really needs very little, in fact, nothing from me? in any sense, to be safe and protected and okay. I cannot provide for him. I cannot protect him. And I don't need to. What I need to do is have a look at the foundations of what I believe is true and real. And if I'm finding myself in some kind of patronizing, poor God, he needs my protection, or some kind of all truth is everyone's truth and it's out there. And wow, I really admire your sincerity and your passion. Can I plead with you, get a bulldozer and break those foundations? They will not stand. Because they cannot hold truth. Until I accept that I need God and not the other way around. My house cannot stand. He alone has made me. He alone can save me. And next time we'll see in a profound prophetic act how God himself is willing to step into the place of most profound pain and be with us and ultimately in the cross of Jesus, ultimately to suffer for us, not because of what he's done, but because of what we've done so that we might be forgiven. I, I need this God to save me and not the other way around. Let's pray together.